sons took over the family business from the dad and they divided the management of the estate into two. One son would look after the crops and the other son would look after the cattle and the livestock. And these sons were actually religious. They went to and did their church thing. They even gave a portion of their profit to God. Anyway, one week the church was having a meal lunch together and so both sons offered offered to bring something one son brought the meat and the meat was superb it was so tender wagyu plus nine marbling it was amazing and everyone raved about how lovely the meat was at the lunch but the other son he just brought the scraps rotten fruit wilted veggies and it was telling the silence when it came to the fruit and the veg that the other son brought. And this didn't escape the attention of the son who had brought the wilted fruit and veggies. In fact, he had become so angry and resentful of his brother, so much so that he couldn't stand even the sight of his brother. So he took a gun and he shot his brother in the middle of a field. This is the first family in the Bible. And there contained within the first family of the Bible is this sibling rivalry. Sibling rivalry, which goes beyond rivalry, leads to something that you, would, you might think as a parent unimaginable between two siblings, murder. Sometimes the hardest people to love are those in your own family. And you know what? The Bible's really honest about that. First family in the book of Genesis to, in fact, the last family in the book of Genesis, and pretty well, actually, every family in the book of Genesis is messed up. And one of the key ways which these families are messed up in the book of Genesis is the relationships between siblings. It's like Cain started something that just got worse and worse and worse and couldn't be stopped. Cain's legacy is passed down as Genesis unfolds, not, to, not for, for things not to get better, but to get worse. Jacob. Jacob is forced to flee. From who? His brother. Why? Because he steals his brother's blessing. You've got the estranged siblings. And so Jacob goes off to his uncle's place. He marries two women, Leah and Rachel. Now, it's never a good idea to marry two women. And if you are going to marry two women, make sure that those two women aren't sisters. And if they do happen to be sisters, make sure those sisters get on. And then if they do get on... Make sure you love both the sisters. But Jacob, he marries two women, both sisters, who don't get on and only loves one of them. And the seeds of that jealousy play out. They play out because who is Rachel's child? It's Joseph. And what's Joseph like? in his family. Well, Joseph is golden boy. You know why? Because he's the son of the pretty one, the one that Jacob loves. 
And how does that work out for golden boy Joseph? Well, not too well. The family joke became serious when it was one jacket too far and they ended up pretty close to murdering Joseph. The sin of Cain is played out from Cain throughout the generations in the book of Genesis. And you read the book of Genesis and you think, gee, like, that, that, they are messed up families. I'm glad my family isn't quite as messed up as those families because sometimes the hardest people to love are those in your own family. And maybe that's why it's so hard to love people in the church. Have you ever thought about the words that the New Testament uses to describe who we are as a group of people? A very fashionable word these days is community. But the New Testament doesn't really use that word community as such. It doesn't say much. Do you know what the most frequent way in which the New Testament describes who we are as a church? Anyone help me out here? What's the most frequent analogy for the church? Yes, children, and that's, and that's not exactly what I was thinking, but it's very close to that. Uh, what are children normally a part of? If yeah, Family, thank you. Family is the most common way the New Testament talks about who we are as a group of people. The household of faith in 1 Timothy 3. Members are called, thank you, Lynn, children addressing one another as brothers and sisters. And you know what? We see that all the way through this book of 1 John that we've been working our way through, and especially, especially in this passage that Ken read out to us just before. Why don't you open up to 1 John chapter 3, verses 10 to 18. Because you can see there that John uses the language of family no less than eight times in just these short number of verses because sometimes the hardest people to love are those in your own family. And maybe that's why many have given up on the church. I mean, let's face it. We don't have to hand out tickets for people to get in to the front door of our church. And in fact, if you look at the statistics over the last 50 years, if you graph them, there's been a sharp decline in church attendance across our city. Perhaps... People have been bullied by overbearing clergy. Some have been abused, many neglected, and most very hurt. Because sometimes the hardest people to love are those in your own family, your own church family. Because this is what this passage addresses. This passage really addresses the difficulty of what it is to be part of a church family. If you've got 1 John chapter 3 open there, John makes very clear about what we need to be doing. Have a look there in verse 11. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that you should love one another. Now, if you've been coming to church, this is nothing particularly revolutionary. Yes, of course, Christians are to love one another. But, Jesus, but John is reflecting on the commandment that Jesus gives his disciples. Um, in, a, in a passage that we didn't read uh, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says three times, the upper room discourse it's called, a new command I give unto you that you love one another. Now, 
that sounds pretty reasonable because, you know, you're nice, middle class, Christian people, and that's what you do. You love. And so that shouldn't be too hard for us, you know, just polite, nice. You see, well, loving one another wouldn't be so difficult if it was a matter of just being nice and polite to perhaps your closest friends, your peers in age, background and education, those that you click with or have some affinity group that you join in an activity together with, sport, recreation. But John makes it very clear that that's not what he's talking about. That's not love in John's mind, and that's not his vision for what it is to be part of a church community. Because John makes it very clear that the context that he's talking about here is the love of a brother. And John is helpful because he realises, if we're honest with ourselves, that that is hard. That is hard to genuinely love our brother's and sisters. I hope in some ways that's a relief to you because sometimes we just paint over it and we just think, oh yes, of course we're Christians and we're so loving and that's great to be part of such a loving community, but it is hard. It is real hard. What would it look like to be loving? This is what John wants to help us understand. He starts off negatively first and that's our in it under point two. It doesn't look like Cain. Have a look at verse 12. He says, you know, we've got to love one another. Okay, what it doesn't look like is this. It, don't, it doesn't look like Cain. Don't be like Cain, verse 12, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. So there you go. Okay, that's a little bit more information. Okay, you've got to be loving. Don't be like Cain. And in case you were wondering, it's not loving to murder the person who takes the last bit of cheese at supper tonight. Now you know. We read this and we think, okay, <clears throat> okay, don't be like Cain, belong to everyone who murdered his brother. Okay, right, yeah, of course. Don't be like Cain. Uh, I can't recall recently a time where I've murdered a direct sibling. I'm off the hook. And so we all sigh, um, uh, breathe a sigh of collective relief. But before we let ourselves off too quickly, scan down to verse 15 because John starts to work things up and it's making, it makes us feel a little uncomfortable because he says, verse 15, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. John says that it's not just the taking of a physical life that constitutes murder. He's saying here in verse 15 that hate is a type of murder. It's odd, isn't it? I mean, murder is extreme. That's illegal. Um, Generally speaking, hate doesn't breach any law unless it's some form of hate speech. But what, what John is doing here is just lifting pretty well Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount. Let me just read Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. This is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. But anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. I remember reading that as a kid. And um, uh, I thinking, well, you know, what am I going to call my brother now? So Jesus says you can't call your brother a fool. 
What, what am I going to call him? So I had to make up other rude names uh, to call him. Jesus is saying that there is more to the sixth commandment than meets the eye. Sixth commandment, do not kill. Jesus is actually channeling that uh, as he raises this in the Sermon on the Mount. Because he's saying to demean someone, to put them down, is actually to steal life from them. And Jesus helps us to see that the sixth commandment is not merely about the absence of taking someone's life, what the intention of the Ten Commandments is, and particularly, say, in the context of the Sixth Commandment, do not kill, the intention is not for there just to be an absence of murder, but the intention is for there to be a promotion of life, for the flourishing of life in human relationships. That's why Jesus isn't giving a lesson on manners when he says, don't call your brother a fool. It's, it's not as if this is some impolite kind of thing that, you know, we're Christians and we need to speak nicely or properly and we don't call people bad names. When you insult someone, say, as Jesus uses the example, calling them a fool, fool is a moral term in the Bible. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And so in Jesus' mind, to call someone a fool, what you're saying is that that person is incapable of knowing or loving God. You're, in fact, by calling them a fool, demeaning their humanity. You're failing to let them grow and flourish as a human being. And as we're going to see, this is our job. This is why we need one another. And so when you put someone down... You're sucking the life out of them. So much so, Jesus is so insistent on this that he says it's like a kind of murder. You're sucking the life out of them. Now, we might not be so overt in our relationships by calling someone that, although I've heard it said in church life. We might not be so overt, but we often actually think these things in our heart if we're honest. John tells us, back to 1 John chapter 3, verse 15, to hate is to commit murder. And Jesus is speaking here about a kind of anger that wishes a person not exist. Wishes a person, because that's what anger does, doesn't it? And, and this, is, this, is, this is a good thing about the Bible. You know, people don't like the Bible because it talks about sin. I like the Bible because it talks about sin because it's, it's realistic about who we are. And here's the thing with anger. When, when you're angry, what happens? You, the, the person normally that you're directed your anger at, you normally have that kind of that sense that you, you can't just stand to be, say, in the presence of that person, that you wish that person didn't exist. And so you can see how anger comes from exactly the same place as murder. Murder is actually just the execution of that desire that the person doesn't exist. But anger comes from the very same, part, uh, very same place. It just lacks the conviction to do what you want to do. You see, Jesus says that Cain stole his brother's life. And we see here that you can do that without taking one's physical life. 
But why? You know, why did Cain murder his brother? We're up to point D and a point two in your outline. Why did Cain murder his brother? Well, verse 12 tells us in 1 John 3, have a look at verse, at, uh, verse 12. Tells us because of his own action, because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. That's why Cain murdered. Now, to understand what John is saying here in verse twelve, we actually have to step back, back into the story of Cain and Abel, back to Genesis chapter four. Now, this may be familiar to you, but what John is pointing out here, I think, and I skipped over it very um, early on in the week this week, and it's caught up with me. And I've begin, begun to see how profound the point he's making is and how easy it's to miss. Because you might remember what happens back in Genesis chapter 4. You've got Cain and Abel. I kind of recounted the story uh, in, a, in a modern way. They're offering their sacrifices. And then the Lord says, the Lord looked with favour upon Abel and his offering and on Cain upon his offering he did not look with favour. Abel's offering was acceptable, Cain's offering wasn't. And so the Bible says, Genesis chapter 4, verse 5, so Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. See how Cain's feeling? He's feeling rejected. He's feeling rejected by God and so consequently he feels anger. And um, the, the word for downcast... Um, in the original, it could be, we might translate it for, uh, as the word depression. He feels a kind of depression, but the depression that is being spoken about here isn't depression from cloudy days, uh, too much social media, not enough exercise, and an overactive thyroid. That's not the kind of depression that he's talking about here. He's talking about a, a spiritual depression, a spiritual depression from a broken relationship with God. The question that God asks Cain in, a, in response, so um, Cain is angry, and then God asks this question in verse 6, Genesis chapter 4. He says, why are you angry and why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? See why Cain is upset? He's upset, he's downcast, he's spiritually depressed, he's angry because of his relationship with God. But what does he do next? Abel is where he directs his blame. His relationship with God is off, but his brother becomes a conduit for his anger. He couldn't deal with his relationship with God, so he deflected it to Abel. All he could do was see Abel. All he could do, he, 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 it's almost like he's tortured by you know, Abel's perceivably perfect relationship that he has with God. To see Abel in Cain's mind was an unbearable reminder of his inadequacy. And as humans... We find that so hard to live with, don't we? To feel inadequate in the light of someone else. To feel inadequate especially next to someone that you're close to. And when that happens, you know what we do as humans? We want to do something about it. So profound is that feeling of inadequacy. So motivating is that we, we have to do something about it. And so we kill. 
We kill in our hearts and we wish that person wasn't there because it's too hard to see them. And so resent and jealousy kick in and Cain kills Abel. And maybe as much as we don't want to admit it, that's exactly the way our hearts work as well. Maybe Cain isn't that extreme. Maybe that's the case so often in our lives. We see someone, especially those that we are close to, we see them and there's this jealousy that, that kicks in. There's this perhaps a, start, a feeling of discomfort that leads to discontentment, that leads to anger, that leads to wanting to push them away. See, this can happen in church because we so often resent other people's gifts, their flourishing, their position. You know, we resent it when other people's lives look so blessed, look so fantastic, look so pain-free, wonderful, and like everything's happy. And here we are with all our mess and all our pain, and we're having to deal with all the hard stuff while the other person's living the blessed Christian life. But actually, the root of the issue is not with our brothers and sisters. The root of the issue is not with other people. The root of the issue is our relationship with God because it's a lot easier to criticise others than to deal with our relationship with God. And so we need to step back and ask if we're angry. And that happens. Okay, One of the things is in Christian communities, we often don't think that we do get angry or we can get angry, but here we do. Jesus says we will. When we're angry, when we're jealous, when we're mad, when we're resentful, we need to step back and ask why. We need to step back and ask why. So John helps us to see we're not to be like Cain. He says, don't be like Cain. And so in verse 16, he says something positive. But, and what you might think is, as you read the story of Cain and Abel, don't be like Cain, be like Abel. That, that's not what he says there in verse 16, because he points to a greater Abel, one whose blood speaks more powerfully. Because what does it look like to love? If it doesn't look like Cain, what does it look like to love? It looks like verse 16. Have a look at verse 16, 1 John chapter 3. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. John is saying here that Jesus is the model for love. And what did Jesus' love look like? Well, firstly, his love was tangible. Um, in our modern world, we love love. This is the kind of, you know, you can just about justify anything in terms of love. We love the idea of love. But the way our world thinks, and often we think about love, is, well, it, it often is reduced down to a sentimental goodwill. We wish someone, I mean, um, I've noticed at the moment, uh, we've moved in kind of modern discussion, modern, sounding old, um, or the young people um, talking, uh, not vibes, I talk about the energy that, I'm, you know, have you heard this? I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting the vibes of this. I'm getting, um, the, you know, the, the kind of, I'm, I'm feeling the energy of love. That's how some people talk. And so, you know, love is just a vibe. Love is just something that kind of radiates from you. It's, 
if you like, a sentiment of goodwill. But notice that Jesus' love is not a sentiment of goodwill. Have a look what it is. Jesus laid down his life for us. You see, love is tangible. It's not just a vibe that radiates off someone. It's tangible. It's, and it's easy to say that you love and for someone not to feel loved. It's more than just a word and a vibe. It's actually based in how the other person responds to how you're acting, behaving, or what indeed what you're saying. Love is worked out in practical ways. And so it's tangible. But secondly, it's sacrificial. Because have a look at verse 16. Because he laid down his life. He gave up his life. And thirdly, notice that the direction of our love is, well, is to be personal. Have a look there. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Jesus loved in this sacrificial, practical way, and we are to love in that kind of way for whom? We're to love personally. And this is, I think this is important because, you know, John 3.16, God so loved the world. It's God's job to love the world. It's not our job. What does John say the direction of our love is to be primarily? It's to be for our brothers and sisters. And it's not merely our biological family, although the Bible sets that as just a bare minimum that you would love your biological family. You don't have to be Christian to love your biological Everyone in, throughout all cultures love their biological family. That's not Christian love. And it's not merely the church. You're not supposed to love the church as some institution, some important kind of organisation that you're to love. No. End of verse 16, we're to love our brothers. It's personal. It's directed, it's tangible, sacrificial, personal. And what would that look like? Well, John spells it out there in verse 17. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Well, what would it look like? Well, it looks like the practical realities. Now, John in verse 17, I think, uses as an example material possessions. But what is really important for us to see there is that the love is about the brother's need. I think in John's context, probably it was material possessions. And this is really important for us to understand because we might be kind of quite motivated to love, but love requires us to know another's need. And how would you know another person's need? Well, firstly, you might not presume you know what it is. Secondly, you might ask how you might love them. And thirdly, you might have to walk next to that person before they're ready to tell you how they genuinely want to be loved. See, this is the trap that we get into as Christians. It's something that I've um, learnt recently. Sometimes we are so driven by our guilt of thinking that we're not loving and you know Christians need to be loving and I don't feel like I'm loving enough and I've really got to love because I'm a Christian person and so what we do is we thrust what we think is love on another person on others but it's not loving if it's more about making us feel better about ourselves than considering what the other person the object of our love actually needs Love is not about making us feel better. 
Love is about supplying the needs of the beloved. And so love has a patient quality to it. In the Bible, love has this wisdom to it. It's not just a dumb feeling that you get caught up in. Love has a wisdom and a patience. You've got to get to know people. You've got to spend time with them in order to love them. And you know what? You know, one of the beautiful things about the position that I have in our church is I get to see that. I, I get to see the way in which, and ways in which people don't want to say because it's, it's just, it's so profound the ways in which they have been loved in this church. You know, so many people have said to me, I have never, ever in my life been loved the way I've been loved in this church. And I delight in that. That is a beautiful thing. I rejoice in that. And that is the work of God, that people have tangibly and sacrificially met the needs, paid bills anonymously, given gifts, given their time, week after week, in moments of crisis, in the order. It's a wonderful thing. But I know there are also some people in our church and some who are not part of our church now who haven't felt loved. And so we need to consider that as well. But all this talk about love in church is nice, but as I talk about how we are to love others, as John um, encourages us to do, I'm also mindful that there are many people in our church who have been hurt, Um, many people who have been hurt in other churches, and I know some people that have been hurt in our church because they haven't felt loved. But remember what John says in verse 16? This is how we know what love is, that Jesus laid down his life. Does it say there in verse 16, have a look with me, that Jesus laid down his life for people that never hurt him? Does it say that Jesus laid down his life for people that never let him down or never wronged him? See, to become a Christian is to realise that you only live by God's grace, the forgiveness that he has given you. And if you have received God's forgiveness, guess what? The other person that is with you in church is also a recipient of that forgiveness. You're in the same boat. And so here's the thing. Here's the thing. To love like Jesus, to love like Jesus in verse 16, you have to become discouraged by the church. To love like Jesus, you have to be disappointed by people in the church. To love like Jesus, you have to be let down by people in the church. Because then you love with clear eyes and a full heart. Because that is exactly the way that Jesus has loved you. And if we haven't been hurt in church life, it probably means that we haven't been in church long enough or we haven't involved ourselves deep enough. Because I know that we're people that have been hurt. But I also know that we are people, no doubt, who have hurt others. So just as I close, I want us just... To finish there, looking at verses, I'll try and close this, verses 19 and 20. There John John focuses on the heart and God's work in our heart at the end of verse 20. For God is greater than our hearts, for he knows anything. See what is greater than our hurt? It's God's love. And when the love of God is poured into our hearts, you know what happens? It spills over. You can't have the love of God 
in your heart and it not spill over. This is what John's saying. He's saying loving others is important. It's crucial. Loving others doesn't make you a child of God, but loving others is a result of you being a child of God. And so there are two questions that we need to ask this afternoon. Firstly is, obviously, do you love your brothers and sisters? Are you committed to getting to know them, to get to know their needs? Are you serious about this? Because John says, if you want to be a Christian, this is really important. That's the first question, but it's not the last question. The last question to ask is perhaps more important. And it's this. Have I received the love of God? Have I experienced myself the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? John did. John wrote this letter. You heard at the first reading that John was the disciple who Jesus loved. John was the one who let Jesus wash his feet. John chapter 13. And so we need to ask ourselves, am I willing to let Jesus love me? Am I willing to let Jesus love me tangibly? Am I willing to let Jesus love me sacrificially? Am I willing to let Jesus love me personally? Because he will. And he does. Tangibly. This is my body given for you. Sacrificially, this is my blood shed for you. Personally, it was given for you. So what we need to consider, what we need to do more than anything else tonight is to allow God to love us. And when we allow God to love us, the overflow will be our love for others. Amen. Please stand as we sing our next song.